Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. My guest today is Charles Yang, an EECS master's student at UC Berkeley, focusing on AI and dynamical systems. He writes the excellent Machine Learning for Science newsletter, where he showcases a wide range of use cases for machine learning in scientific research and engineering. I'm always impressed by the sheer breadth of knowledge that he manages to pack into these emails every single week, and I cannot wait to hear from him today. Charles, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So normally I start these off by asking how people first got started in computer science. But in your case, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had an interest in material science first, right? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. So I was always interested in like material science, um, batteries, chemistry. So that was kind of like what I, I wanted to do. And then at one point, I ended up working in this EE lab and they wanted me to learn MATLAB. And I didn't know it at the time, but what they had me doing in MATLAB is basically what we call machine learning now. It was uh, evolutionary algorithms. But I did not know that at the time. I just thought I was working on this thing called evolutionary algorithms. So it turns out that my first intro into CS was, was machine learning. So that's kind of how I got interested into, in programming and in CS and specifically machine learning. And that's kind of how I started uh, pivoting my journey. So you said that, yeah, that your first experience was with machine learning on that side. When did material science come into play? So you started off by doing research in that, right? When yeah, did- that, was, that was just something I've had since my childhood, really. I was always interested in science I and mean, I really enjoyed chemistry and thinking about things down at that kind of level. That was always like a, a childhood thing. And it's still definitely something I'm still interested in. But this CS thing was a very, you know, unexpected kind of detour, if you will. Yeah. When did you kind of realize that you could bring in machine learning to the field that you had loved since childhood? Yeah, I think it was interesting because the lab I started out with, we were working on power grids. So we were doing like physical simulations um, using a lot of these different voltage dynamics. So even then, when I was first picking up CS, I was using it, you know, in a scientific context. And later, as I learned more and more um, about CS, I, I was a traditional, you know, CS major at Berkeley. I realized that I enjoyed CS, but I was not interested in 
just building software for the sake of building software. I wanted to build things that would have a real world impact and would advance, you know, scientific knowledge. And so that's kind of how I started to look for ways to bridge it. And there are many ways, which is what I write about. Yeah. And speaking of your writing, first, I want to say that I have no knowledge of material science, but yet I'm able to understand your papers. So it plays well into uh, you having written the newsletter. Both are very simple to understand and easy to get takeaways from, even for people who are not in those fields. That's great to hear. (laughs) And focusing a bit on the research that you've done so far with material science and deep learning. First, can you explain to someone who has no idea what material science even is, what is a composite material? Why is understanding the property so important? Things like that. Yeah, so a composite material is just a material that's made up of different constituent materials. The comparison would be like a homogenous material. So like a steel plate on a plane, that's homogenous. But actually, most steel plates, all of them, um, are not actually homogenous. They have both iron and they have carbon in it. So that in and of itself is a composite. So we use composites in basically everything because they have very unique properties. And so a lot of my research is dealing specifically with how do we design composites um, in such a way so that we can get these kinds of unique properties that you can't get with traditional homogenous materials. Specifically, we're focused on 3D printing design spaces because 3D printing is allowing us to do all these weird things that we could not build before. And so now the design space is expanded. And the question is, how do you explore that? And so that's kind of where we're bringing in machine learning, deep learning. Yeah, there was a really great image that you had on one of your newsletters. I forget which one. It might have been the first where there was a robot arm with four different 3D printers around it. And then one of them was testing them. They moved it from each one. I just thought that was... Like one of the coolest things that uh, in terms of real world use cases for that optimization and machine learning. Yeah, that's definitely one of the more exciting things that I've been uh, seeing across all, a lot of different fields, actually, not just in, in 3D printing, but this intersection of automation with manufacturing and AI. And when we bring all of these together, you can get this basically, you know, lab in a box where um, you just run a program and it does its own experimentation, op- does its own optimization. Hopefully at the end, it will come up with um, a physical design. So it's different because traditionally when we do this kind of optimization, we do it numerically in software. And so you end up with this theoretical thing and they're like, okay, now how do we make it? But now with automation or robotics, we're seeing you can actually do this whole thing in the real world, uh, which I think is something that's really exciting. Yeah. And those numerical methods you're talking about, that's if I, if I understand it, is where you're actually doing the machine learning. And the interesting thing to me as someone who hasn't really done any of these simulations is how long they take to run and how much computational power actually is in it. So first off, why does it take so long? Why is so much power needed? I mean, so this is traditionally how things have been done with these numerical models. And so the question is, how do you explore using this as a subroutine? And so traditionally, we use things like genetic algorithms. So now with deep learning, we can do all these sorts of different things. But they use a lot of compute because the way we used to model reality, uh, which we think is physically accurate, is using like differential equations, um, using a lot of systems of equations, um, like Maxwell equations being the most famous example. And those are fairly difficult to compute. There's these hard bottlenecks. Same thing with quantum mechanics. And so we use those kinds of equations because we think that's how reality actually works. 
Um, and it just so happens that that's fairly difficult to compute. But the whole thing with deep learning is now maybe, you know, these neural networks can learn an approximation of reality. And even though we have no reason to believe that reality is, is described as, you know, hierarchical ReLU activations, it just kind of works and it's a lot, lot faster. And so that's why it's kind of um, this, this new paradigm and how we think about simulations. Yeah. And just to highlight for the listeners, some of the results that you've gotten in your papers in the optical properties one with Mahmoud Azuka, one of the lines is, even on comparatively sparse data sets, these ML models solve problems with excellent accuracy and four to eight orders of magnitude faster than traditional methods. Yeah, that's right. I, and I wouldn't say that's anything, honestly, I wouldn't say that's anything unique uh, in, in our specific paper. That's actually something that is happening in a lot of different fields where we're seeing deep learning is getting us huge um, returns on the compute speed up factor. And that's really amazing to me. I think it was in one of the links you mentioned, but there was talk of possibly an image net moment for machine learning in science. Do you think that we are approaching that or that's already happened? Yeah, I think that that is something that is really interesting because a lot of people talk about image net moments also for natural language processing, which is probably a closer analogy for, for traditional ML. And just uh, for context, this idea is that ImageNet, we had this huge data set, big competition, everyone was working on it, and no one could figure out the problem. And then what really spurred you know, the whole rise is that we, we saw convolutional neural networks just achieve incredible performance. And now that they had that breakthrough, everyone was able to iterate over this uh, problem to the point where ImageNet is pretty close to being solved now. And that, there, there was an incredible amount of innovation in a very short time span that was driven by the rise of a very large standardized data set that was difficult and rapid competition, public competition that helps spur innovation. And so people have been talking about this for natural language processing, like Sebastian Rutter writes a lot about it. And so I've been thinking about, you know, how does this apply to the sciences? And, you know, science is a very broad thing. So it's not like, you know, there's an image that moment for just all of science per se, but different fields are in kind of different stages. So I would say like chemistry, quantum chemistry is kind of, kind of getting there. They have a lot of big data sets with, um, that have been run on traditional density functional theory. And so different groups are working on improving on this benchmark. But then there are other fields where this is much more difficult, either because the data is not as open source or because of uh, separate regulatory concerns, like power grids, which is the first thing I worked on. We had a lot of security issues where you can't share things because it's a national security problem. I would say some fields are much closer to this image net moment. Again, molecular science is probably the, the closest and the bio side as well. I mean, there are other fields that, that are still kind of getting there. But that, that's kind of what I see as a critical threshold for a lot of these different scientific fields and using machine learning. Because if you have all these different groups that are all using different data sets that they don't share with anyone, it's kind of hard to judge progress in the field. Yeah, and in your Towards Data Science article, Deep Learning and Science, you laid out a really good framework for why these why some fields more than others are were able to yeah, achieve better results in deep learning. Do you think that it's inevitable that the fields that are currently lower will, for lack of a better term, catch up to the, the others? Or do you think that they'll just be a runaway in certain fields? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I will say that deep learning is not necessarily the final answer, right? It's the best thing yeah, we yeah. have right now. But actually, I think one reason that's exciting is the sciences might drive innovation because deep learning was really driven by like computer vision problems in like ImageNet. But scientific problems are totally different. And maybe we will come up with, with different things for that. 
So I would say for some of these fields, it's it's not clear. You know, maybe it's because for the molecular sciences, for instance, some of the most exciting work is being done with graph neural networks, which are kind of a totally different thing. And again, in some of the material sciences and, and kind of scraping literature, there's actually a lot of work with natural language processing. Again, these are all kind of deep learning variants, but maybe in a separate field, there'll be something totally different. But I will say, yeah, there are some structural issues. Like I talked about again with, with power grids, a very important problem for renewable energy and, and having batteries and, and moving to a cleaner grid. But it's how do we share this data? It's a similar problem actually in healthcare. Healthcare, you can't, you know, HIPAA, you can't share hospital data. So there's a whole lot of work that's being driven into federated learning. Arguably, like federated learning was motivated by this, this problem of sharing hospital data. So maybe we will see new innovation for power grids. It's just hard to say. But it is definitely something I think that is so important is that it's useful because if you only focus on one field, you know, I'm a material science, uh, material scientist. If I only looked at material science, I would not have an appreciation for what are the things that makes material science unique in terms of its adoption of machine learning. But if you survey the entire field of not the entire field, but if you survey different parts of science, you will see that different structural factors affect how you are able to adopt deep learning. That might help drive insight into your own field, which is why I think this kind of analysis is useful. I guess one of the, what it strikes me from reading your papers and other papers that you've linked to, it seems like one of the biggest hurdles of being able to use machine learning in this research is it being black boxes and not having that much transparency into it. Do we need this for all progress to happen in scientific research with ML? Or I guess, how do you kind of see the, the problem of explainability and transparency? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I would say actually a lot of my work right now actually focuses on using random forests specifically because they're more interpretable. I will say that there, there is a benefit or not a benefit. There, there is something about black boxes that makes it okay. So for instance, for inverse design, if we just want to speed up a numerical simulation um, and we just want to find some design that's really optimal, you know, I don't really care how we get there. Uh, we just take a black box, we fit it to the numerical simulations, we do some optimization, we end up with this final design. We don't really know how the deep learning model got there, but we can always double check it with the numerical simulation. And this is one of the key differences. We have a ground truth. The ground truth is costly to obtain, but we can get it. And if we can get there faster than normally, then I'm okay paying a small price for it. So in some sense, you could take this optimal design that you kind of discovered with a deep learning model and kind of try to figure it out. You know, you say, okay, this is what's really good. Why is this really good? And you try to use, this is where the human in the loop kind of comes in, right? But ideally, we would really like, and this is where, again, some of my work that you mentioned before is focusing on is what is the you know, motivation for this design? What is, how do we interpret this? What are some design rules that we can extract? And so that is something that we can't do with deep learning. And so this is why, uh, this is why I call it machine learning for the sciences, not deep learning for the sciences, though people do that as well, which is that deep learning has many great benefits, but it is not, again, the final word on everything. There are many other machine learning models that have their place in science because we're interested in different problems. We're not just interested in you know, accurate predictions. We care about interpretability. And we care about generalizability. So th- these are kinds of things that make other models still useful, like Gaussian processes, which have kind of you know, fallen by the wayside, are still very important in the sciences because we can get uncertainty estimates, which is very important in a lot of engineering fields. It's interesting that you say that because of the higher explainability of random forests, that that's something you're, you're working on with more. And there's obviously a trade-off between that lack of explainability and deep learning, but yet you get such good accuracy with them. Is it 
I guess when you're making the decision of whether to use random forest or whether to use deep learning, how do you think about which one that you want to apply to a certain problem? Yeah, I think it, it depends on what we're trying to do. If this is a, you know, a data set that no one has ever thought about using, and we just want to show that deep learning works, because sometimes that's not clear, then we'll just go with the deep learning model. But if I, I'm, I'm usually skeptical of papers that just say, oh, look, we have a new data set. Oh, look, deep learning works. It's still surprising in some fields, but to me, it's, it's not as surprising. So the work that is really exciting to me is when someone does something you know, new. And usually the new thing is not, uh, you know, random fit, but it's like, oh, we use a random force and we get some sort of insight. And that's kind of what I, I'm trying to do as well. But there are, of course, many people who are also using deep learning models and doing all sorts of really interesting things with the architecture um, to fit their scientific problem or, or loss function crafting. So those are also still exciting. But yeah, I, I no longer just think of things as, you know, model.fit because that, that's kind of not quite as exciting as it was before in, in most fields. And can you give a, if you're willing, if you're able to talk about that current research, what are you applying those random forests for the purpose of explainability to? And what are the results that you're hoping to get from that explainability? Yeah, so some of our work that's just finishing up from peer review, so hopefully we'll have published soon, is we look at random forests applied to composites again. Except this time we're able to, uh, we, we use, so there are different characterization methods. So we, we might have a composite and want to say, oh, how well does it perform under stress? And we have different ways of testing it, some of which are more accurate and slower, and some are less accurate and a lot faster and a lot cheaper. And ideally, we would just like to use the cheaper one, right? But maybe there's an accuracy trade-off. And we show that we can actually use uh, random forests to bridge the gap. So you can get use the cheaper, faster method, but still get all of the accuracy. And we're actually able to do that because of its interpretability. And so we have some, some cool plots that show like, oh, there's something here that suggests some new phenomena that people did not, were not aware of before. Um, and the only reason we were able to kind of elucidate that is because A, we had high throughput simulations and B, we used random forests to efficiently extract that data and then kind of visualize it in a new way that we might not have been able to do if we had just looked at the data naively. Um, so that, that's kind of the kind of stuff that we're working on where we think of models as like compressed learners where they take a data set, they compress it into some efficient representation, and then we're able to probe that representation and learn something new that people had not seen before. So that's science, right? That's, that's what science is. And we're able to use machine learning models to aid us in that. And one of the things that you talk about as being the, uh, major, one of the major problems in applying this to different scientific fields is that there are these, there's an existing knowledge base, right? And the theory is that if you can encode it in the network already, you're starting from a place that is presumably better. Is there work that you've done on that or how are you kind of thinking about that? Yeah, that's, so that, that's a very exciting part of this where in, in traditional computer vision, traditional ML, you know, we don't have a, a knowledge base per se, right? We, we can intuitively look at a human face and recognize it, but you would not be able to give me any sort of rules. And kind of the whole thing about deep learning is we don't have those rules. We just let the model learn. But in science, we have uh, all these rules, you know, a couple thousand years of human history and Ideally, I like to think, you know, they're not that wrong and, and useful and can help speed up learning. And so the question is, how do we integrate those? That's still something that I'm kind of exploring. Uh, I will say there, it's a two-way street. This is something I've also written about. So, you know, you have machine learning and you have the sciences. And so I think a lot of times people pose it as like, oh, machine learning is helping the sciences. We're bringing machine learning into science, right? We're accelerating science. Yes. 
But there's also another, you know, it goes both ways where actually a lot of scientific principles can be used to help build better machine learning models. Um, so we see this with like Hamiltonian neural networks or Lagrangian neural networks. So, so it's a two-way street, but I will say some, some new work that, so I, I kind of work on the other direction actually, where some of my previous work was treating neural networks as a dynamical system, which we use a lot in physics. And when we view neural networks as a dynamical system, we can get some new insights into stability, robustness, generalizability. I'm kind of working actually on the other direction. But yes, there are also many people working on the direction of bringing machine learning into the sciences and integrating our scientific um, understanding. So uh, like, for instance, one paper that I covered was like using a physics-inspired loss function where you can basically do weekly supervised understanding of differential equations just by crafting a loss function that thinks in terms of differential equations. And so that's kind of like some new exciting work um, and definitely a field that is something to keep an eye on. Yeah, there was a presentation that someone at my uh, that my work had brought in to showcase their own work. And one of the things that they were talking about is the use of mathematical, the field of topology and like manifolds and how that can be used to enhance existing deep learning methods. So that that inverse that you talk about of bringing methods from mathematics, science into to yeah, like you said, craft those models to more, more, more accurately, but, but I guess more natively, for lack of a better term, be able to get those insights. Or is there a field in particular that you think has done a particularly good job of this? Yeah, I will say mathematicians and physicists are usually the ones that are good at this, probably because they uh, know a lot of math. It is usually those those people who are able to do those kinds of things, probably because physics is, you know, every phys- I'm not a physicist, but every physicist will say, you know, we're the we're the real scientists. Everyone just builds <laughs> on top of us. So I, I would say that that's probably where most of the adoption is coming in. Mathematicians, also a statistician. So my, my advisor, for instance, works a lot of his work dealt with like random matrix theory. And you can do a lot of cool things when you bring in the idea of random matrices um, in terms of how efficient you are. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of crossover with a lot of different things. And it's just a question of how are we going to bridge that gap? So this is like kind of the really exciting thing about working in intersections. You know, people are p- constantly cross-pollinating ideas. And that's where I think a lot of innovation is going to be continuing to happen. Yeah, uh, especially if, like you talk about, we can start to have a new generation of what you termed the bilingual scientist, where they're able to be fluent in both the machine learning part of it, and also it, with the domain expertise of their own field. Is this, you, you've talked about the bilingual scientists, but do you think that this is something that is happening right now? There's an acceleration of it? Yeah, this is definitely something that uh, is really exciting to me. I will say I did have a, a quote from the eminent Donald Knuth, who's a famous CS professor at Stanford in the 90s, I believe. He gave a lecture where he talked about this. He talked about this idea of having scientists who are trained in, in both fields, both CS and science. So it's not a new idea by any means. And this idea actually is not, it's not my own. MIT recently announced their Schwarzman College of Computing, this, this new or school of AI, basically. And in their news press, they talked about you know the need for bilingual scientists who both know how to do computer science and AI and who are both trained experts in their own field. Um, and that's something that I think is really, yes, accelerating. There are a lot of people now that I talk to who are like grad students in like physics or material science or biology. And yet they speak like a computer scientist uh, or they're able to, you know, kind of uh, code switch into that language, but also speak their own language. 
I, I think many people, perhaps, especially in the traditional ML background, are probably skeptical. They say, you know, what, what do we need? You know, domain experts, feature crafting for deep learning will solve it all, right? Maybe, maybe one day. I do not think we are there yet. And I think there is a huge need for um, people yeah, who are able to bridge this gap. And that is where a lot of the innovation right now is happening. When I read a lot of these papers that are using deep learning for like discovering new antibiotics or, or new physics, they're not written by computer scientists. They're written by biologists and physicists and uh, cosmologists. There, there are many reasons why that might be. Maybe it's just because all the people who are traditional ML researchers are, are working on problems that pay a lot more money, perhaps. <laughs> but I think also there's something about these problems that requires you to actually understand what it is you're working with and how to um, bring in your domain knowledge into like figuring out what is actually the problem here. What is the important thing to solve? Um, so I don't think, you know, people say science is going to go away. It will be all automated. I'm not, I don't believe in that idea but for now, at least in the next, you know, coming years. Yeah. Speaking from the perspective of, perspective of me being a machine learning person, not a, a scientist. When I read specifically your paper on auxetic metamaterials, that <laughs> that was extremely hard to, uh, to parse through. And I can see exactly why the expertise of a domain expert is required for something as specific as that. And it's funny because two separate people in the last two weeks, two friends, one a, a physicist and the other in a mechanical engineer, they were both asking me about uh, this machine learning so we're definitely, it's getting more into the zeitgeist of that this is something that's, that might start to permeate in every field. Do you think that all scientists will be using machine learning in the future? No, I, I would not say that. I think that, I mean, there's this whole field of experimental and uh, char characterization science, right? That, that's a huge field, especially physics, you know, building these huge colliders. I do not think a robot will be building them anytime soon. Mm. But I do think people, like you said, this it's entering the, the zeitgeist. Everyone is going to have needs to have some sort of at least at least some cursory knowledge of how they are used because maybe in the future, I mean, there's already work on this of designing new tokamaks for nuclear fusion with AI. We need to at least have some understanding of, of how they're gonna work. And I would say this is actually not just true of science. But actually just of society in general, because our society is increasingly one that is integrating AI. I mean, that's part of your job, right? So uh, we need to have an understanding in, a, in a, this conversation, not just in science, not just uh, in CS, but I, I would say in, in our society, societal fabric. Yeah, I really loved the newsletter that you had on scientific gatekeeping and how that related to COVID. And, I, and we'll get to that later. But to stay on the topic of bilingual scientists... Let's say that you're a scientist who wants to apply machine learning into your work. How would someone get started with that? Uh, so I would say one of the great things about computer science and AI is it's a very democratic field. Anyone can learn. I mean, I haven't taken actually that many machine learning classes. I've actually just learned it all through Coursera. And yeah. anyone can take a Coursera class from like, you know, Andrew Ng at Stanford or, or many, any of the other classes. And a lot of these CS classes now are just putting all of their lecture notes, all their lecture videos on, on PDFs and online, and anyone can find it. So I would say you're actually in a much better place if you're a scientist who wants to learn machine learning because you know anyone can do it, really. Uh, and, and the fact that you're a scientist most likely means you already have a technical background, which, which only makes things easier. If anything, I would say it's harder to go the other way because as a computer scientist, it's actually much harder because science is probably not as open source yet. Um, so it's actually probably harder to go the other way. So there are plenty of free uh, online resources that are 
able to get you there in terms of in terms of learning machine learning. Another way, and this is kind of what is really happening in the field, is to you know partner and make you know connections um, with other people who do know how to do that, which is what a lot of these big tech companies, which I also write a lot about, are doing. Like Google, Facebook, they are actually <laughs> driving a lot of science with their AI expertise, for better or for worse. Um, and so that's kind of a common pathway now of how do you integrate machine learning, find someone who knows machine learning. But I think it is becoming increasingly easier and easier for groups to develop their own in-house expertise, which I think is is for the better. Yeah, that it's always funny when you see a company like Salesforce, a SaaS company who has a deep learning research lab, and they're working on protein folding. And what are, and you have Google obviously is working on basically everything. What are the problems that you see with these big tech companies starting to really get into everything ML related? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Something I think a lot about. I think these tech companies want us to think that, oh, this is out of our own charity, perhaps, or, you know, we have so much expertise and we just want to help science, the science community because we want to be integrated with them or something. Uh, I, I do not have quite uh, so high a view. I will say it is good. I mean, better something than nothing, right? I do think machine learning is driving a lot of important scientific research. And most machine learning research, especially at the top of the field, are at these tech companies. So at least it's good that this is happening. But I think it's bad because it makes sciences, the, the huge scientific community is now dependent on private companies for compute, for expertise. Um, and there's this very imbalanced, skewed picture that we have where traditionally research, academic research in the U.S. is funded federally by the federal government, which is funded by our tax dollars. Um, and so we have kind of this feedback loop of sciences for you know society. But when science is integrated with these private companies, they are able to work on problems that they are interested in, perhaps company, problems that they want to monetize, which is something I've written about. You know, Google has done a lot of weather forecasting. Um, and they've open sourced everything for now. But I'm guessing in the future, they will probably have some sort of weather forecasting API that might you know, replace the National Weather Service for better or for worse. And, you know, maybe it's probably a better service, but do we as a society want private companies to be kind of doing weather forecasting or, you know, any other sort of problem? And so this is a conversation, again, that I think we need to be having, which is the field of machine learning and science is very skewed towards the private sector. Is that good? Is that bad? What are the effects? Um, this is something that I'm still, you know, <laughs> exploring. I will say that, the federal government is stepping in more. So actually, just this past week, the White House announced new national initiatives in quantum computing and in AI, pushing a lot more funding. So we're slowly kind of getting there. But in comparison to these massive tech companies that have huge amounts of cash flow, it's really nothing. So we, we really need to be thinking about how is this affecting the way we're doing science as a, as a community. And I think it's a conversation that we haven't really been having yet. Yeah, like you said, the the public sector is starting to get to get more aware of this. I was reading the Oak Ridge National Laboratories paper on the future of machine learning in science and it seems like I mean Oak Ridge it's a huge laboratory, very storied institution. Do you think that the government or public sector research in general has any chance of matching these big companies? Well, uh, part of that depends on what the, the public sector does in terms of funding science. Part of that depends on uh, what we do with these big private tech companies, these multinational corporations we have, which is a separate conversation that Congress is also <laughs> having and, and kind of outside of the, the scope of this, yeah. I guess. I would say as it stands right now, 
I don't want to frame it as a competition like public sector versus private sector. You know, in the U.S., we've always had a very long and successful tradition of partnerships, right? So, so I don't want to say, you know, we need to get these companies out of here. Uh, it is for sure a good thing. Uh, I do not think the federal government is probably able to match the spending of these tech companies in these fields, most likely. Especially like when I think about individual talent, you know, these private companies are able to pay, you know, half a million dollar kind of salaries. I think overall that that's okay because the U.S. government can shape other things, you know, immigration, how we think about, you know, AI talent, mm. how do we fund things? How do we kind of encourage scientists to kind of get into these fields and learn? So it's okay that Google pays people half a million dollars to do this, as long as we have an appropriate balance of people who are kind of working in the public sector with the sufficient expertise and resources. But I would say on the latter half, that that is kind of what we're missing right now. Um, and I think the government is able to do a lot of things about that. It's a question of will they, how will they? So that's something we're still seeing playing out right now. And one of the, I guess, not not directly related topics to this that you've talked about is the rise of open access research in science more generally. And I actually don't know if machine learning and computer science was the first one to really start to do this, but it's definitely a trend that that is occurring in other different fields. Why do you think that this is something that's happening? And do you think every field is going to start to be more open? Yeah, open access is a really big thing. I, I do think it's fair to say, you know, CS and machine learning kind of helped drive that. I don't know if they were the first first, but they were definitely the biggest group of people to kind of adopt this. It's again, this interesting conversation about, about public funding. You know, the, the federal government uses taxpayer dollars to fund research. Um, these ac- academics are funded by the government. They publish research. And then private companies then take this research, they publish it in a journal, and then we, the taxpayer, have to pay money again to access the research that we paid for. And so it's, it's this very you know, strange and contrived notion. And so right now, the scientific community is having this conversation about, you know, why are we paying so much money for these journals? Why do we need journals? How do we kind of think about you know, peer review, open access? And a lot of different communities are adopting this at different rates. So physics, for instance, I mean, you know, physics is basically using archive just as much as computer science, especially in more of the theoretical fields. But in other scientific fields, it's a little harder. Actually, in my own experience, you know, I've tried to push, uh, oh, maybe we should put this paper on archive. But there's kind of this still this ingrained idea, especially in, you know, faculty tenure review, which is open access archive. You know, we we care about impact factor, not about number. Right. (laughs) And it's like, how do you determine impact factor? Well, it's you know, by these prestigious closed journals. So this is kind of a conversation that is, is happening right now. And I think is definitely an important thing to be having because peer review is important. It's, it's kind of the gatekeeper of all science. And not, not, not as a derogatory term. I mean, we do need gatekeepers, right? That's how we maintain the integrity um, and the validity of the science that we do. But it's kind of how do we think about, you know, who should be able to access this? How should we pay? Who should pay for it? And these are kinds of questions that are being asked at different times in different fields. So again, like I said, you know, physics is probably the farthest along with math, but other fields are probably, you know, farther behind. But the great thing actually about machine learning in the sciences is machine learning is kind of pushing this. You know, people are trying to do machine learning in, in biology or chemistry, and they, they put their paper on archive because that's what everyone in the machine learning community does. And so that's, I think, one definitely one benefit of, of adopting machine learning is this push we're seeing towards open access. Yeah, it's good that I like how you highlighted that the need for gatekeepers in some sense, because if one misguided view that some people have is that which should be open source all the time, no matter what. Uh, But like you said, there's the problem of 
what we're kind of seeing right now in ML research, where because you don't really, ha- I mean, you have some gatekeepers, but there's not really that one person who, or one institution that tells you what's really important in the field. And so we end up with soda chasing where the papers that get the most attention and therefore the most money are ones that can produce that 1% better result, even if it comes from 10 times the compute power. What do you think about the state of that kind of research in the machine learning field specifically? And is that something that might start to happen in science as well? Yeah, soda chasing is is kind of you know kind of this new problem I think, and this is even more difficult than thinking about institutions. This is about culture, right? The culture of ML research is what constitutes good research, and if good research equals good soda benchmark performance, then we're, we're doing the right thing. But I don't think anyone actually believes that is how we should be doing research, right? And I think this is a discussion that people are having, which is peer review in these in these conferences. That's open source. How do we think about? What constitutes good research? How do we check the validity of a result, right? And there are kind of really new, exciting things that's happening in Europe and in ICML where they have like, you know, reproducibility challenges, things like that, that I think are really exciting. I think a similar thing is kind of happening in science where um, this is why it's useful, I think, to look at the machine learning field because they're kind of ahead so we can see what kind of troubles or challenges to expect. And so this soda chasing is kind of happening right now in some scientific fields, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because we haven't reached the state, you know, the real state of the art yet, right? Um, you know, kind of with the early days of ImageNet, soda chasing is not a bad thing. That's that's what was driving the research. But I think scientists, I, I, I like to think, are a little bit perhaps already culturally have this idea of it's not just about the number, the accuracy. It's about what kind of insight, and I think that's what scientists get excited about, right? Which is new equation. Uh, you know, I just t- published this uh, in my newsletter, this paper, uh, talking about this paper that uh, they discovered a new equation for dark dark matter uh, yeah, yeah. halos with the graph neural network. I mean, that's the exciting stuff. There's different cultures that we also have to think about. So it's this very interesting, very human aspect of science, which is how do we think about peer review? How do we think about gatekeeping? What are the, both the institutions and the money and the culture and the people that are kind of shaping all of these things that are really kind of shaping our research? That is something that I think is interesting and worthy of, of discussion as well. I think with science, one of the things that potentially, like you said, it doesn't have that uh, definitive benchmark for the field. It's, it is more about trying to get that understanding of what's actually happening in the world. And going back to some of your own research, but not the research itself, but more about the, the processes of doing that research. How do you think about what problem to prioritize solving in terms of both impact and feasibility? If you asked a tenured faculty member, they would probably say something different. I'm, I'm just a grad student. So for me, I just work on things that I am able to work on. So, you know, things that I have data for, things that in my current context, I have the resources, both in terms of advising and people to work with. I would say that if I'm given a data set, I can do many different things. And usually actually conveniently, the data set is somewhat a data set that no one else has seen. So that's kind of nice. But it's kind of like, what do I want to do? Do I just want to fit a model? And no, that's usually not what I want to do anymore. It's like, what can I extract from it? What kind of insight can we gain? What kind of new techniques can we use to learn something? And so those are kinds of the questions that I ask. Usually, in addition, there are plenty of opportunities out there to make collaborations. And usually the kind of collaborations I'm interested in are the ones that lean more towards the science side, like, you know, what, what kind of problem are they working on is an important problem in general, 
So for instance, I've just started working with some another group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that's doing uh, Monte Carlo simulations for, for battery cathode materials. I mean, I think batteries, this is maybe harking, harkening back to the, our first conversation about material science. I think batteries are hugely important for our society in terms of clean energy and our, our, how we think about uh, climate change. So that, I mean, that's an interesting problem. And if I can use my understanding of AI and numerical simulations to help in that, you know, I'll do that because I think it's an important problem. So it's kind of a, it's almost, almost agnostic to ML, but then once I pick the problem, then it's like, okay, how do we bring this in? Um, and that, that's kind of the way I think about it. Maybe that's, you know, perhaps indicative of my more scientific background, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing about this kind of research in science is because you're getting that ground truth from a simulation, you're, you not only can craft the data set to be exactly what you want it to be, but you can make it as, as big as you want it to be. Well, within limits of your compute, of course. When you're approaching a new problem, what is the first thing that you want to do? Do you look at the model first? Do you look at what data you can get first? Yeah, I will say this idea of ground truth is actually a huge difference between traditional machine learning and machine learning for the sciences. And I think that idea is actually going to and already has been driving a lot of new innovative techniques that are not seen in the traditional ML research because they're, that idea of ground truth is kind of lacking. Where if you want to determine the ground truth of a picture, you need to ask someone. But in, in the sciences, we can just ask a numerical simulation or even cooler, we can synthesize it ourselves, perhaps in an automated fashion. That I think is a huge driver of a lot of, you know, active learning, a lot of optimization techniques that you could not have used in traditional ML. That's something I think is really exciting. I and mean, it's something that I'm actually kind of writing about for this, this position paper um, that I just started. But for myself, usually, I will say, usually I think about the data because um, I think the data shapes the modeling, both in terms of how did we get this data? Where can we get more? How is it structured? And what is the problem that I'm, I, I'm actually interested in? Those kinds of questions that are all kind of, I would say, data-centric drive what model I'm going to use and conceive of. So it really does start, I think, with the data and with the problem that you're working on. The model comes later. Uh, and that's at least in my workflow. Yeah, and it seems like the models that are being used in science so far compared to those in, well, the models that we're seeing now, like GPT-3, that are just absolutely humongous, the ones in science comparatively seem to be like you said, lagging in from the machine learning state of the art. And it's really exciting to think about how early we are in terms of that model development, because if, again, it's, it's lagging and the results that, the breakthrough results that we've seen in natural language with the increases of those model sizes, complexity, problem-specific solutions. Do you think in the future that we're going to be able to shift that bottleneck more from the data over to the model development in science? Yeah, I, was, I think this problem that we talked a little bit about earlier, actually, with open access is also true for data, you know, open sourcing data. We don't have that culture of open sourcing data. And this is something I've actually run into in my own research of, of trying to open source some of the data that we have. But there's just no incentive to do that, which is problematic. One of the first papers I covered, actually, in my newsletter was a work out of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab that used natural language processing to show that you could actually predict properties of materials based on scraping literature into the future. Yeah. So if you look at this is in nature communications, I think if you look at, you know, papers from 2010 and the, and, and the past before that, you can actually predict experimental insights after 2010. And that's, I mean, that's huge. And the technique they used was word to vec. I mean, <laughs> right. That, that's like, you know, 
a much older technique, but it works really well. So we are definitely lagging, and I will definitely say that you know the people who have GPT three and you know BERT and, and who are producing ResNet are also the same people who are producing the biggest models that we use in the scientific community. But I would not. I, I don't want to say you know science is lagging, and one day we will catch up and be the same. I do not think we're going in the same direction. We're using some of the same techniques, but like I like we've been talking about, you know, science has different problems. It has different types of um, data setups, and so the techniques I think we will develop are going to be different. But right now we are still, you know, playing catch up in a sense. But we are, I think, I think we are starting to see some of these new techniques that are qualitatively different than the techniques being used in ML because our problems are different. And I think that's kind of where the, the arc is heading towards. So it's not kind of a right behind following, but it's kind of a taking a separate path. And I think that's kind of what we're starting to see. Yeah, just seeing all the different use cases that you can that you highlight in your in your excellent newsletter. It's really exciting to me personally, just seeing the, I guess, Cambrian explosion of different use cases. And like you said, try starting to really diverge in, in its own direction. If someone like me, a machine learning person wanted to start to go into or start to use their expertise more in those hard scientific fields, where would you recommend starting? Oh, that's a good question. I'm guessing most people who are kind of like you were saying, who work in machine learning are probably working at a a private company. So my guess is this is, I guess, speaking to someone who is not working in academia, not working at a huge tech company that is already partnered with academia. So if you're like on the Google accelerated science team or like the Facebook AI research team, then this, you know, you probably already know how to do that. But if you're just working at some company that that doesn't really have any kind of that background, it's probably difficult uh, to convince you know your manager or your higher ups to oh maybe we should start allocating manpower towards basic scientific problems. I don't even know how Google had that conversation. That would probably be difficult. I will say I think if someone is really motivated, they could just reach out to groups that seem like they want to are starting to move into machine learning, but perhaps don't have their own expertise. There is probably a great value to having someone who has a deep sort of experience as a consultant, just, you know, someone to bounce questions off of. That would be like a very, you know, not code coding kind of level, but just as like a high level advice of what models should be used. What should our software setup be? Those are the kinds of questions, especially the software setup. Those are the kind of questions you can't find online, right? Anyone can tell you how to use Keras. Not everyone can tell you what your GitHub and like your Kubernetes and all that should be looking like, right? That's a much more difficult question. So I think you could even even <laughs> reach out to just a department and just say, forward this to all the faculty. I'm a machine learning person. I want to just help in you know some small advisory capacity. And I think there will probably be huge amounts of interest. That I think would probably be the easiest way to get in because like I said, there's a huge amount of interest. It won't be too much commitment, I think, to just be you know a, a couple hour conversation with a group of people. Um, and I think that alone would probably be very useful. And there probably is a, a market for someone to do this kind of organizing that I, ha- I haven't thought about, though. So maybe one of your listeners might want to do that, or, or maybe we'll, we'll see what we can come up with. <laughs> yeah, organizing around. Interesting. Yeah, have like some sort of consulting group that just reaches out to departments and provides that expertise. Oh, yeah, yeah. That really interesting uh, of an idea, actually. That we... afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like how you mentioned that the software setup part of it, of that part being a bottleneck for many, especially places in academia. One of the 
theses behind this podcast itself is that at the barrier for machine learning to become useful in tech companies is actually the engineering part of it. Our models are so good at this point that we're better than human level in many things, but our products really aren't that much better. And so that software set apart, the engineering part is where things are getting stuck. But to bring it back to the opportunities that are out there in science, we mentioned before in the, at the start, that obviously some fields are more ripe than others. And now that even many ac- groups in academia don't have that expertise, what do you think are those opportunities that are really ripe for the disruption of ML in them? Yeah, so I think some fields, you know, are already, you know, full throttle in a lot of physics communities, biology. I mean, biology has been doing, you know, these kinds of modeling way before anyone was even doing it because they've had to deal with big data for before anyone was dealing with big data for all these tech companies. Even I think actually right now, the field I'm working in that I'm pretty excited about is, you know, mechanical engineering, because we've seen with optics and kind of from the physics and EE community, you know, they're starting to bring in these machine learning ideas. And, you know, the difference between Maxwell equations and finite element is very trivial, actually. But mechanical engineering has kind of been using a lot of these more traditional numerical techniques like fluid flow dynamics and traditional finite element solvers. And I think just now we are really starting to see the adoption of deep learning. So that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to be working in this field because <laughs> it really is at the forefront. I will say another community that, I, that I've talked about before, is, and again, this is kind of biased by my own experience, of course, but I would say the power grid community is something that is also really struggling kind of wrestling with this because power grid is regulation is very conservative you know we do not want blackouts at any cost and and, you know of course the data is very sensitive you know now especially with you know all this digital hacking you know power grid information is, is of national security importance so that is a field that is really wrestling with you know how do we bring in these models that we don't really know what they're doing that require lots of data how do we have guarantees about what's going to happen and so that is a field that is still kind of figuring things out, I would say, but it's, I think, of a great importance, especially as our power grid becomes more dynamic with renewable energy and there's all sorts of uncertainty. We need better models. Um, and so that's kind of something that I think is really important as well. Um, there's also other fields, you know, defense is probably another that we need to have that conversation about as well. Um, but I would say, you know, there are many fields that are working on bringing in deep learning and machine learning, and that's really exciting to, to see happen. I and mean, there's definitely a lot of new opportunities to be explored. I do not have time for all of these. So maybe someone <laughs> else will want to uh, try to hop in. And I think that would be great value. Yeah. The bottlenecks in the current models that you speak about in terms of, of how to apply them to science is really interesting, especially the parts about the bottleneck being on the explainability and transparency side, and also on the side of federated learning, because you do want to keep those, those things private. And in regards to the power grid specifically, there's a, there's a book that I read in school by Bruce Schneier with uh, Click Here to Kill Everybody. It's very, it really highlights some of those issues with the power grid and what can happen. I mean, we've seen in Ukraine, the Russia hacking of them on Christmas Day in 2014, I think. And that, yeah, those fields that are especially sensitive like you said, there's a lot of opportunity just because of how conservative they are. To make a uh, a pivot to one other topic that I haven't, don't think, I don't know if you've mentioned it specifically in your newsletter, but it seems to be a an underlying thread is diversity in the machine learning and scientific community. 
and not just demographic, but also psychographic. So it's in, it would be interesting to get your perspective because we're seeing those questions being presented in both science and machine learning at the same time. Yeah, that, this is, you know, definitely something everyone is kind of wrestling with, you know, again, as like a whole society. And I think, especially in terms of gatekeepers, you know, we need diverse gatekeepers and kind of thinking about what that will look like in terms, especially as we're rethinking peer review is kind of, I think, an important topic. I really do think the diversity conversation is really about background. A demographic is, of course, an easy indicator, but really what we need is you know, a diversity of experiences, a diversity of perspectives. And that, of course, part of that is, is demographic. So there's a, you know, a famous, a lot of articles being written about you know, how Silicon Valley is dominated by white men. So tech companies are solving all these problems that they are excited about, but there are all these other problems for like female health or for like um, racial equality that just you know, no one is funding. And I think there is perhaps a similar conversation happening, especially in the machine learning field. But I think in terms of diversity, when I talk about diversity for gatekeepers, it's really not not just racial or demographic, but really just the fact that we need more than one. I should not be the only one. I mean, not to say I'm much of a gatekeeper anyways, but yeah, we do need a a diversity of perspectives of what science is. And we should be having these kinds of conversations about, you know, what voices are we including and what voices perhaps are, are being left out. And this is kind of how you get new ideas. So for instance, like deep learning was had this, you know, AI winter, right? That that's part of that is because there was a dominant, you know, perspective and a dominant culture of what is considered fertile research and what is not. And so this is, you know, that's just one example of why this is important. So another way to think about it is, you know, if you only are selecting a certain people with certain experiences to be experts in a field, quote, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, you're missing out on a huge swath of society. That's just wasted talent. And we really need to be leveraging the whole of society here in, in you know, being part of the conversation about science and AI and where we kind of want these things to go. And if we're just leaving certain people out, then that's how you end up with marginalization. So yeah, gatekeeping, both peer review, just in terms of perspectives that we have on our research, I think it's important in all those ways to have diversity in every sense of it. Yeah, that, that part about having diverse gatekeepers as well, not just the researchers, but because of the move towards open access, like we had highlighted before, you really need that prioritization because obviously as one person, you can't just read absolutely everything you need you need at some point someone to tell you what is going to be important, what's important now, what's going to be important in the future. And to shift gears more towards your own writing of your newsletter, you, in the the article about uh, scientific gatekeeping and bringing that back to COVID, you talk at the bottom about the passion economy. And we're seeing that a lot with the, or no, you talked about that in the business of, uh, of SAS, but when I guess, how did you get the idea to start the newsletter and what made you decide to go in that direction? Yeah, good question. So I started the newsletter, you know, nine months ago. So actually at, at the start of 2020, I think I, I've started subscribing to a lot of newsletters. And, and the reason this is kind of the, the bundling of, of information on the internet, right? There's so much information out there. How do you find it? Well, you just rely on experts, trusted people who will send you what they think is important. If you only have one person sending it though, or the same set of perspective sending you that stuff to your inbox, you're going to have their perspective as well, which is again, where this idea of diverse gatekeepers comes in. But for me, you know, I, I was getting all these newsletters and I've always liked to write. I think it's an important skill. So it's something I try to exercise. So I also think reading papers, of course, is another important thing to be doing. So I was like, well, you know, maybe 
this will help me encourage myself to write more and encourage myself to read more papers. And if anyone is interested in reading what I write, then all the better. But so it really started out as kind of an exercise of me forcing myself to write more, forcing myself to read more papers. And I think when I write, you know, as, as, as you've talked about, you know, sometimes I write about things that I've been thinking about and the process, I think of writing something down and structuring it really makes it coherent. Um, so really this, this newsletter is purely for myself, but it seems like some people are interested as well. So that that's great as well. Yeah. I can say that I personally get a lot of value out of it because I'm not in the stream of the advancements that are happening in science, especially as it relates to well, yeah, all of science, really. But and there's so much research out there. How, what's your process for keeping up with it and reading it and processing it into what you put in the newsletter? Yeah, so this is again kind of the whole bundling of science, right? So we have this problem in computer science where everyone's publishing open source on archive. It's like how do you separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were, right? Citation count, that's, I mean, that's almost a heuristic that I use now because I have, you know, I see a paper on archive. I'm like, is this a real paper? Is this, you know, how good is this? Do people respect it? Citation count is one way, probably not the best. And the way I do it is actually just by having diverse gatekeepers, like I said. So I subscribe to a lot of different newsletters. As I've mentioned briefly, there's probably a market out there for someone who just aggregates all these great blogs out there that people write about machine learning and just kind of collect them all in one place because they're kind of hard to find individually. What, so specifically what I do is I curate my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed to have... So they're, they're almost strictly academic, especially Twitter is almost strictly professional, where I follow people who are publishing research. Um, and sometimes they'll share a paper they like or a paper they wrote, and maybe I'll see if I like it as well. Um, and I also curate my Facebook feed to like follow different news organizations, both scientific and otherwise, um, just for myself. I, I will also say this is kind of harder, I guess, um, for, for your listeners perhaps to relate with, but just being in an academic environment... There are lots of people, every like all these different Slack channels, all these different mailing lists. People are just sending papers they thought are interesting. And so I think it's important. Again, like I said, you know, I don't want to be the sole gatekeeper because I'm biased, right? I I only follow certain people on Twitter. I'm at Berkeley. I have a certain context that I'm operating in. So there are things that I'm almost certainly, I mean, certainly missing. Um, and this is why we need that diverse set of perspectives who are bringing different um, things together that people are able to then kind of, kind of cross uh, pollinate through. So, you know, I, I'm by no means perfect. I'm just providing what what I'm seeing, I guess. Um, and we need different people who are doing that. that. That's kind of actually my inspiration for what I thought about these diverse gatekeepers, because, I mean, I'm certainly limited in my own view. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's important to be encouraging that. Who are the gatekeepers that you pull sources from personally? Do you want to shout some of those out? Yeah, so... um Honestly, actually, I kind of don't know almost uh, <laughs> because the, the way Twitter, you know, the way Twitter works, it's, you know, who other people are retweeting. So I kind of just see what other it's, you know, I'm just training the algorithm as it were. <laughs> I will say, you know, this is outside of machine learning for the sciences, but one, a couple of newsletters that I really enjoy are like um, Chin AI by Jeff Ding. Yeah, talks yeah. a lot about China and AI. Benedict Evans talks a lot about uh, tech regulation. CSET is a think tank at Georgetown that just started that focuses purely on AI and national security and foreign policy, which does a lot of interesting work that I follow. In terms of machine learning for the sciences, I mean, one of the fact I work with Grace Gu uh, at Berkeley, she is working on mechanical engineering and does a lot of different work. Our group has a mailing list. So sometimes that's where I got actually a couple of those papers because she sends out. Mm. Uh, our group just forwards papers to each other. And so she's doing a lot of really cool work in mechanical engineering. Like we said, that's kind of really at the forefront, which is why I'm really excited to be working with her. I kind of just follow up in terms of blogs. I kind of just 
peruse, check around. So like Google's AI blog, Facebook's AI blog, Berkeley's AI research blog. They always post things about their own research that are usually interesting, especially Google. Always fun to see what they're up to. Um, yeah, so I, don't, I guess I don't know if that was super helpful. Uh, one final one I'll say is perhaps Nature News and Scientific Magazine. They have like a news section. That's kind of where I get a lot of my you know mm-hmm. science news in terms of you know science funding or what is kind of the trends in science that are helpful. It's it's really I guess funny and interesting that Twitter seems to be the the agreed upon place for all these different researchers to come together and be promoting their their articles. I don't know if it was from your newsletter or someone else's, but I saw that it was highlighted that the papers that have attention on Twitter are far more likely to be mentioned in their follow-on citations. Yeah. And it's really funny that I guess now it if you're a professor trying to get citations and trying to get tenure, then having an active Twitter account nowadays seems to be one of the best ways to do it. Yeah, that, that is something yeah, I've talked about. And the funny thing is, I found that paper through Twitter. <laughs> uh, and I think that's, I mean, that's, that's hugely problematic because we were talking about here gatekeepers, peer review, and now Twitter is shaping science, right? And so Twitter has, you know, so many, so many problems especially for scientific communication, right? Like network effects, you know, uh, rich get richer. We're, we're actually, Twitter is basically pushing us to excluding diverse perspectives because it's harder to mm. kind of get that um, buildup of followers. And, and the other thing is, you know, Twitter is a terrible platform for just discussion. Like threads is a terrible way of doing things. Uh, we really need a better way. Uh, what is that better way? I, I don't know. I will say, you know, openreview.net for all these conferences we're seeing, I think is pretty good. I, sometimes if I find a paper... I will just look at its reviewers because they're all, you know, open source and I can see what the reviewers say. And then I can kind of check that with what I think much better than Twitter. <laughs> trying to find a paper on Twitter is, you know, impossible. So it, it, it's definitely problematic. I use it because it's our currently agreed upon platform. I don't think in the future it should continue to be. And so the question is what, what will be? And that's, you know, still open. Yeah. There's a really interesting opportunity, I think for, well, we were already kind of seeing this with things like Archive Sanity, which yeah. really helps to filter a lot of those pe- papers that people kind of publish in their basement and to see what's trending. They even have a section, what's trending on Twitter, on Archive Sanity as well. But it seems like there's a an additional opportunity and Open Review sort provides us in some sort of way where you have collaborative, not editing, but collaborative like summarization, highlighting of what's important in each paper, and I guess comparing papers to each other. And so it'll be really interesting to see the tools that come out of the community as a result of everything being completely open. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely, um, I will say the way we set up platforms really says a lot about what we think in terms of expertise. So Twitter and Facebook, for instance, will say, if you like something, your friends should see it. Or if you retweet something, your followers should see it. And if, you know, it's like who determines likes, quote unquote, in peer review, right? It sh- I don't think it should be anyone, right? So how do we verify? How do we determine authenticity and expertise? And in, in you know, these conferences, NeurIPS, ICML, what we do is we ask people who submit papers to review, which has its pros and cons, but I would say it's definitely better than, you know, perhaps um, other systems where there, there's other platforms that I can't think of off the top of my head that just have papers and you can like them. And anyone can like them. And it's like, that doesn't seem like the right way to go about doing things. So we need some sort of, you know, gatekeeping, some sort of peer review process. 
the question is, what should that look like? Who is a quote unquote expert? These are the kinds of conversations that we need to be having. But yeah, I'm also very excited to see what happens, what turns out. And this is an this is an analogy I'm just thinking of on the spot, so it might not be perfect. But like you said, the current platforms, social medias, are set up in the way that you broadcast things to the people who are following you, and that can create echo chambers. But we've seen the rise of TikTok recently, which just you don't follow anyone. Well, yeah. you do follow people, but your feed is filled with things that you might not necessarily that might not be from people who you follow. But at the same time, the algorithm does take into account the likes of people who are quote unquote tastemakers more than something else. Mm-hmm. So I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think we need a TikTok for machine uh, learning research. We, we will see about that. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, TikTok's interesting because it's, you know, Facebook and Twitter have an embedded idea of what you should see, which is followers or like likes, right? And they have an algorithm, but you know, it, it's kind of crafted around that. Similarly for Open Review Net, you know, the platform is crafted around the idea of review, threaded comments, and papers. TikTok, on the other hand, is structured on videos, but who sees what videos is purely algorithmic, right? They're collecting so much data on like what you're swiping on, how long you look at a video, who made those videos, et cetera, et cetera. It's, pure, it's like much more algorithmically driven than other things, uh, other platforms. I don't know if peer review will be like that per se, but it is, it is an interesting, uh, interesting conversation that we're also having around, you know, tech policy and what is an algorithm. And I, I think to me, it's like the algorithm embeds our social values or the value of its creators and maybe not all of society. That's something we should be thinking about. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if peer review will look like TikTok though, per se. Well, it, that seems like uh, a spot to start to wrap up if, uh, if there was one. So I'm going to move on to some of the rapid fire questions that I ask all of my guests at the end, experimenting with some of these. So uh, they might be a little bit rough, but, and they don't have to be necessarily rapid fire answers. They're just very short questions. The first of which is how do you recharge outside of work? I will say, I think I I exercise just medically proven to help read socialize, like talk to friends, which is a little harder in COVID. I will say I don't, I don't feel very drained by a lot of my work, probably because I don't put my value into it, my personal value, that is. Um, so I just do things that I, I enjoy. And if I don't enjoy it, then I'll just stop doing it. Uh, so, so I think I, I have thought about you know this, the way we use language of recharge. It implies that you are discharging your energy for work mm. and nothing else. I, I don't see my work, I, I suppose, I guess, in that way, which I think is a I personally think it's a healthier way of thinking about it. But yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, actually. I never thought about the, the specification, specific terminology of recharge. Yeah. That's really interesting. I guess for me as well, people ask me, what do you do for fun? And I tell them, well, I make a podcast about machine learning and <laughs> I read about it and yeah. I <laughs> read about finance. <laughs> They're like, that's fun. <laughs> Like, yeah, for me it is. So, but yeah, the, I I definitely agree that the, maybe we're both heading to burnouts and we don't know it, but I definitely agree that, uh, your work can be fun as well. Next is what book or books do you most often recommend to other people, technical or non-technical? Yeah. So one way I I recharge, recharge, quote unquote, outside of work is by reading. Um, and I almost strictly read things outside of my work, because I think it's important, again, you know, to have a diversity of perspectives 
And I think especially it's easy talking to some of my friends who work in the same area to see everything through the lens of machine learning or computationally, which is not a bad perspective. It's actually very useful. But I think it's important to see the world in different ways. And so I usually only read non-technical books, non-technical in the sense of not STEM per se, not textbooks. I I think some books that I found really enjoyable, one is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Mm -hmm. Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize laureate in economics, really interesting stuff about psychology. Another one that I read recently, just uh, off the top of my head, is like Golden Gates by uh, Connor Dougherty, I think, who who he writes about the California housing crisis and how it kind of came to be. It's a really interesting glimpse into, you know, local politics, housing regulations, and the different powers in terms of demographics and wealth that play into the housing. Um, So I, I usually just try to read things that talk about how the world is the way it is, not from like a scientific or technical standpoint, because, you know, people are much more interesting in some sense and much more difficult to understand than algorithms. So it's something that's still interesting to read about, I think. Yeah, for sure. And to give a suggestion to both you and to the listeners, if they want to learn more about yeah, similar book to The Golden Gates, I don't know if you've read The Power Broker by uh, Robert Caro. Uh, it's, no, about, it's about uh, Robert Moses, who was a, a power broker in New York, mm-hmm. which is notorious for its Albany machine system back in the day. Right. Uh, and it's truly amazing how this one man was able to shape the entire landscape of literally the landscape because he worked in transportation, made parkways and housing, mm. literally shaped the landscape of New York. One guy. So I highly recommend that book to yeah. both you oh, and to everyone. my list. I have a list. That's <laughs> another helpful thing. Have a list of books you want to read. So you always have something ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The next question is, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Uh, this is an easy one, especially I think relative to your audience. For me, I mean... uh so I'm, I'm a Christian. So I think most of your listeners would probably find that a little surprising. It also ties into kind of the things you just talked about, you know, how do I recharge outside the work? Well, I don't see work as my purpose in life. So mm. it's not a, I don't need to recharge from it. I just do things that I enjoy. And if I don't, then I don't do it. Similarly, like, you know, for books, Bible, great book, <laughs> uh, <laughs> classic. Uh, but I actually spent a lot of my time reading about like theology and philosophy, which I think is a really interesting it's, it is kind of weird. So it feels to me like I have like two things in my head, two totally separate things. But the work part, you know, everything we've just been talking about is kind of just, you know, for fun. But the other stuff is much more serious for me. And I think it's something that I would, you know, encourage your listeners to think about, you know, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing these things? What is, what is kind of my general purpose? And I think that's something that I've seen some people in CS blog about, you know, there's like every once in a while I see this short blog post is like nothing you do really matters. And it's this short essay about how the universe is dying. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. So what is the, you know, what, how should we deal with that? That's kind of, you know, where our modern society is honestly, I would say wrestling with, I think usually people I talk to are surprised when I tell them I'm Christian. I'm always interested by how people, especially in this day and age where we're seeing the rise in secularism more than ever, how they kind of find their way to becoming more spiritual for, uh, I know some people don't like that term, but it seems to be the best one. If you're comfortable sharing it, were you raised Christian and embraced it? Yeah. I mean, this is what I'm, this is what I'm here for. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was raised Christian kind of like starting middle school. I started going to church in middle school. I think I had a pretty unique church experience. Like, you know, most people don't have a terrific experience in a small church or in a huge church, but I grew up in a pretty small church. I think 
I really only started to, I mean, I, I think I had a fairly firm grasp of what it meant to be a Christian, but I really, I mean, the questions that I'm sure your listeners think about, like, how do you know God is real? How do you know the Bible is real? How do you know any of this is real? Those are the kinds of questions that I thought a lot about in college and that I think Christianity offers very solid answers to, especially in contrast to other religions or, you know, secularism, again, air quotes. Yeah. So I, I think Christianity offers very concrete answers and Unfortunately, many people, I think, have a very negative view of Christians because of what some people say on the news as Christians. Um, and I think that's that's very uh, uh, sad. I, I will say another thing is another perspective I've kind of had is, you know, we talked about every, you know, the danger of seeing everything as computational or like as from a machine learning perspective, which is not a bad thing. Again, like I said, different perspectives help you understand complex things in different ways. So another perspective that I've had is seeing everything as religion. I would make the argument that secularism or postmodernism or everything that we're seeing today can be thought of in terms of religious viewpoints or as a religion. Um, there's some interesting articles about, you know, the, the new American priesthood, so quote unquote, or, or you know, with, with Black Lives Matter, which is a, a hugely important thing. But kind of the way people frame these things in terms of privilege and, and justice actually sound very biblical or very religious. So I think. The, the Bible would say that there is no middle ground. There are there is no one who is not uh, religious or spiritual. It's just some people recognize they are, and some people don't recognize it. So I, I think that is hopefully some food for thought, some some food for introspection. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's it's was definitely something interesting that I had found about you when visiting your website. That's actually the being in question is the first thing that you mentioned, which it goes back to what we're talking about but the recharging thing if that if your focus on spirituality and philosophy is where you derive your value from then you don't necessarily need to be your work doesn't necessarily have to be something that drains you like you had said yeah yeah i I will also say just to maybe i think people are always surprised when they hear about a researcher an academic who's who's christian maybe i don't know um but i I don't think it's that uncommon uh perhaps not talked about enough but you know for instance like Francis Collins, who's the director of the National Institute of Health, appointed under Obama, is also a Christian who's written a good amount of books. Or like Donald Knuth, who's a professor at Stanford of CS, who, who we've talked about, also a Christian. And, and the lecture series that I cited earlier, where he talks about the need for bilingual scientists, is his very long and convoluted way of actually getting to religion. I don't really? actually know how he got there, but that, that was kind of where he started, funny enough. Yeah, so I, I will say Christianity is not a... I, I think the one clear difference between Christianity and everything else is that it's not a, just a religion. It's not just a worldview because, you know, postmodernism or, you know, Nietzsche's, you know, existentialism, those are all, uh, those are all worldviews. I would say those are philosophies. Christianity is not a philosophy because it makes a different level of truth claim. It claims something real happened. It's grounded in, in an event, which I'm sure your readers might, might know about. And that is a different level of truth claim than other worldviews of, you know, stoicism. You know, I've, I've read some people who say they're a stoic and I'm like, Cool, but that's, you know, that's just a worldview, you know, it's an opinion almost. But Christianity, true or not, is something that either you believe to be a fact or not a fact, which I would say gives it a different kind of hardness or firmness to it. Um, Maybe just one final quote. Someone once said, you know, if Christianity is true, it is of the great greatest importance. And if Christianity is false, it is of no importance. And it depends where you, which side you believe in. But the one thing it is not is of moderate importance. And I think mm. the reason the inspiration for that quote is because it grounds itself in actual events. And the whole crux of Christianity lies in those historical events. 
if you took that away, there is nothing left. It is just a worldview. And to me, that would then it would be nothing. So, so that's kind of, uh, I guess, short, very brief why, why I'm Christian. Oh, that's, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And for, I would say to the people who are more on the atheist side who are listening to this, I would encourage them to, to explore the concept of absolute truth versus, versus narrative truth. And there's yeah. a really interesting discussion between Sam Harris and uh, Jordan, uh, an atheist and Jordan Peterson, uh, a Christian about this. That's extremely uh, interesting. Yes, yes. Sam Harris, I've heard it. Yes, I've heard it. I, I will say it's very interesting, this idea of truth in today's you know, postmodern society. What, what is truth? It's a line from the Bible, actually, uh, used by uh, Pontius Pilate. But yeah, I will say many people find it quite strange that Christianity is, is very makes these kinds of truth claims in, in a time when people are not used to those kinds of claims anymore, really. You know, universal truth, which I guess maybe some people also find it perhaps offensive, but it's, it's an old idea. And it's, I think it's important to realize it's only very recently that we have this different perspective on truth, I think. So, so historically, just something to think about, you know, where did this idea of postmodern relative truth come from? It's, it's, it's a recent idea, I would say. So it, it bears thinking about. For sure, for sure. So the next is, what is a use case for ML that you think is underrated? Machine learning for the sciences. <laughs> <laughs> that was an easy Simple one. Answer, yeah. <laughs> it seems like one of these... Uh, Rapid fire questions always overlaps exactly with what a guest has talked about. So I'm still tweaking <laughs> yeah. these. <laughs> no worries. How big of an existential threat is artificial general intelligence? Ah, uh, yes. Existential risk. Uh, I think these, in my opinion, and there are people who disagree with me, these kinds of questions are always ill posed. What is an existential risk? How do you measure it? What is AGI? I don't know. I, I think some people say they have answers, especially to the last one. You know, what is AGI? I'm personally of the opinion that, you know, we'll know it when we see it. But I, I will say, you know, my justification for why I don't think about this as much is because there are many pressing and very important problems today with artificial intelligence that are not thought out yet and that we do not have clear solutions to that are in desperate need of solutions right now. We need more people working on those problems. I have yet to see any evidence that artificial intelligence poses an existential risk that is worth the conversation that we've been having, which I think is overblown by certain people on Twitter. <laughs> so uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah, I'm just generally skeptical of this kind of long-term... There are people who call themselves long-termists. I'm generally skeptical of how well they're able to predict things. I don't think humans have ever really predicted anything in the long term to any great deal of accuracy. It could be big. It could not be big. I think there are enough people, you know, enough other people already thinking about it that we and we need more people thinking about what are the mm -hmm. current problems of AI that are already causing great harm um, in many different ways. Yeah, I, I think I actually fall in the exact same viewpoint as you do on this, where some, oh God, I can't really forget who said, who said this, but they said uh, AGI is just whatever we're not able to do yet. So we're never oh, yeah. actually going to get there. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, the, we for sure need more people working on all of these problems, not because of the existential risk necessarily, but because that this seems to be a the most promising future for science, technology, engineering, etc. 
And it goes back to the point on diversity, where if we only have some certain amount of name any minority, then if we can bring those numbers up, that's more people coming to the field who can bring different viewpoints to try and accelerate the, the growth of the field. Yeah, I will say maybe part of my opinion is driven by my own dislike or backlash towards uh, overhyping things. So the, my closest analogy of my own personal opinion is like Bitcoin, which I think is usually also overrated. But blockchain as a technology is has probably some useful use cases that no one or not enough people are talking about relative to the number of people who are t- still talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum, which in and of itself, I think also does have some use case, probably not to the extent that everyone is hyping it up to be. So, so this whole AGI thing, I think is probably my own personal distaste for Twitter hype. <laughs> so it, it, it might, there, it is probably, you know, someone should probably be working on it, but maybe not that many people. And especially not all the very important people who everyone mm-hmm. idolizes on Twitter. And um, so that, that's kind of just my own personal opinion, I guess. Yeah, the EA community, effective altruism community is one that I would consider myself a part of. And the, that seems to be one of the, they're one of the most vocal proponents of the existential risk of AGI. Yes, and, I'm also familiar with that community as well, actually. Uh, I, yeah, I've read, I've read some of their work as well. They, they, I think they would disagree with my opinion. <laughs> I guess the point of where I'm going with this is three years ago in 2017, that was when the books like super intelligence came out yeah, and yeah. where they now call it. Uh, okay. I don't remember what the term is, but they said that they now recognize that their the hype of the risk was greatly exaggerated. I mean, in 2017, they were giving AGI timelines of five years. So, and that was obviously wrong. <laughs> Yeah, but well, now like it's, I said, it's, skeptical of humans forecasting technology into the long term. So. Yeah, yeah. And the one of the last questions to wrap up with is: knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself when you were just starting in science, machine learning? Yeah, I would say uh, this is something. This is, of course, still something I think about: is is being having a more diverse experience in terms of my software background. I think I have a very limited background, actually, because of the, the demand for machine learning. So I'm kind of constrained because this is what is the value add. Um, there's no time to kind of explore as you traditionally would in, in, in college. So I wish I had done that. I wish also I had spent more time actually building my own models in lower level frameworks. So it's very easy, you know, Keras, scikit-learn. It's very easy to just do model.fit, but it's much harder to kind of implement your own things. I wish I'd spent more time doing that. But, you know, now where I am, I, I think... I've realized I enjoy looking at things at a more higher level of abstraction, um, kind of like what I do in my newsletter. So it's, I guess it's, it worked out, you know, um, <laughs> but that is an experience that I wish I had had. So there is, you know, there's something important about learning. There's something important about doing, but there's also something to be said about really digging down all the way. You know, there's so much of this great abstraction in software, but there's something to be said about deep diving deep into it. I mean, I really having your, that kind of hands-on experience that I wish I had spent more time mm-hmm. on. It's, it's really funny that you say that actually, because, well, my answer to this question is very much uh, because we come from very different backgrounds on this. It's mm. that I wish I hadn't dug into the nitty gritty details like I did at the start uh-huh. and instead focused more on learning different data sets and applying the solutions to existing data sets. So it's yeah. really funny to hear that. And I would urge the listener to definitely try and find where you fit on the spectrum yeah. of what you want to do. 
Yeah, there's always this interesting question of like, oh, what do you wish you had done differently or what do you regret? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, if I'd done something differently, maybe I wouldn't be where I am now. So yeah, you know, maybe yeah. if I'd done the things I just recommended to my previous self, <laughs> I would not have been where I am now. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's hard to say, but... Yeah, and also and also the thing, it's like, oh, what would you wish you had done differently? Uh, yeah, I wish I learned everything. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And do you have any final words for the listener? No, yeah. I mean, I guess this has been, this is my really kind of almost first time on a podcast. So this has always been a very enjoyable experience. And I hope the listener maybe got something out of this and maybe is interested in exploring machine learning for the sciences. And uh, also hopefully at the end, maybe some thoughts about where their life is going or, or what they kind of uh, <laughs> think about that. <laughs> yeah, this has been really great. And you said it's your first podcast appearance, but if you keep up the newsletter, I'm sure it won't be your last. <laughs> Thank you. So where can listeners find you online? Yeah, uh, you can find um, my website uh, or the newsletter that we've been talking about, which is ML4Sci. The four is the number and you can find it on Substack. And that, that basically has all the links to my website, my Twitter. I think I'm pretty easy. If, I think if you just Google like Charles Yang Berkeley, I think I pop up. So uh, always happy to chat with anyone. I think I'm pretty open. I mean, these days, who's not open on Zoom? So always happy to chat with any listener who wants to hear more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charles Zhang, much better uh, SEO than Charlie Yu. It seems like <laughs> whenever I search my name, it just comes up with Charlie put my finger. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been really great. And I really do encourage all your all of our listeners to check out your newsletter. That's ml4sci.substack.com. He really does provide so many different links every single week. I mean, I can, I, when the next newsletter comes out, I'm barely done with uh, looking through the content of the previous one. So everyone should definitely check that out. Charles, thank you so much for being on to, for coming onto the show. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Oh,